Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, before we jump into the episode that Scott and I have for you this week, we want to make sure that you are aware of a unique opportunity. That's right. Right now, Northern is offering a $50 Amazon gift card to everyone who applies and is accepted for the upcoming fall quarter. Yeah, I'm a student at Northern and I, this I'll be starting my third year here in a few weeks and I have loved being a student at Northern. It's been a great opportunity to get connected with great professors and also to develop relationships with other students and Northern students are some of my favorite people. They're all kinds of fun. We have a great time learning together and we encourage each other and advocate for one another outside of class. Uh, we stay in touch and uh, we get to learn from each other's ministry experiences, which has been really great. So Scott, why do you think our listeners should think about Northern Seminary for their seminary education? I just finished an amazing week, we call them intensives, with new students at Northern in the Master of Arts in New Testament. And I cannot tell you and describe how great of an experience it was. We I talked too much because my voice is wearing down and the students talked a lot. The students have become friends. Uh, when we were leaving, I saw a huddle of about six or seven of them with their hands on one another's shoulders, praying for one another. So it's become a spiritual fellowship, an intellectual engagement and great friendship. And I think that's the very heart of our cohort experience at Northern Seminary students in intensives becoming friends and fellow journey people on a journey into learning more about theology, about the Bible, and most especially about themselves and God. That's great. So if you want to take a chance take advantage of this unique chance to get a $50 Amazon gift card after getting accepted for the fall quarter, go to seminary.edu backslash K apply to schedule some time with our admissions team or start your application today. Again, that is seminary.edu backslash K-R-A-P-P-L-Y. And now here is today's Kingdom Root episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we are continuing our conversation about Scott's book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing a Culture of Christiformity in the Church. We are continuing our look at seven examples that demonstrate how nurturing Christiformity was at the heart of the Pauline mission. This episode, we're going to look at Paul's culture of storytellers. Scott, I think it would be great to start um, by talking about the story that uh, we as American Christians tend to be the most familiar with. So what what um, story do you think that most American Christians um, tend to find themselves in? Or what's the story that they use to frame for themselves their understanding of their faith? Well, this is, um, of course, a 
we're, we're asking a general question about a lot of people. So we have to deal with some simplicities and some summary statements and some inaccuracies. But in general, I think it's fair to say you can find out where people's dominant story resides by what gets them going on Twitter hmm. and Facebook and Insta, Insta, <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> Yes. Or whatever, or TikTok, something like that. <laughs> and um, I think it is, it has become um, a vexatious uh, irritant in the church in the last 20 years, how politicized the church has become. So to me, the dominant, the dominant story of most Christians in the church I call statism, or uh, who's in control of our country, and uh, I think I think we can see this in so so many ways. Is that our our news media is dominated? It was dominated for years. Let's just say in the social media world, where everything intensified, and the polarization got uh, deeper because the sides got more hardened. Um, during the Obama era, it was the news was all about President Obama. The Republicans and Fox News were furious. And every night was a criticism, all day long, 24-7, was a criticism of Obama. And the other side just reacted, CNN, uh, the other news media, the social media. It was all pro. And it just... It hardened. And I'm not blaming this on either side. I'm blaming it on both sides that we allowed this story to become so dominant that we allowed it to divide the church. Um, of course, during the Trump era, it it just got worse. Um, and you can blame this on President Trump. You can blame this on on the left. Uh, that it was just, it was four years of endless diatribe, endless carping and complaining and sniping at the president. And now uh, we're in the first year of President Biden. And I, I, I will say, I think it's calmed down. Uh, it's calmed down because Donald Trump is not the president. But I don't think the story has changed for people at all. I think people think that the next president or the party that is next in charge is what matters most in, in many people's lives. Now, maybe they don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, Lord, I worship the Democrats or I worship the Republicans. But um, it is so dominant in our culture. And I I have to say this, I I consider myself an independent in many ways, um, and so I feel it. And maybe it's because I'm a theologian, and I and I try to operate with a different story that I feel it and sense it all the time. And maybe I have myself become so politicized that I sense it when the other side or someone who disagrees with me on some political issue. They probably don't even know what I think. But 
I sense that, do you realize how politicized this is? And even, even with our students um, at Northern, and I think we're a pretty tolerant group in our classes. And by and large, I know there's some classes that have erupted into some pretty serious disagreements. Okay, but by and large, I'll have students who will say with certain professors, I don't feel like my political persuasion has any respect in that class. And with other professors, I don't think my persuasion has any respect. So uh, students who, let's say, let's right now, let's just say if you're a Republican and we're going to have, I, you know, Laura, I tell our students all this all the time. You've heard me say this. When you become a pastor, when you become a leader in a church, just count on half the people being Republicans and half Democrats. Is that who you want to pastor? Or would you rather they all be Democrat or all be Republican? That's, that's who we're pastoring. And I, I think we need to model for our students. We need to model in classrooms the kinds of conversations that will be common in churches. And we need to model not allowing that narrative to dominate everything that we do. Yeah, that's good. You you talk in the book about um, this sense that people search for a story to answer their fear. Um, that that we have this sense of anxiety about where things are going, and so we search for a story to help us make sense of the, or to, to calm our fears. Um, and then you talk about statism, that this, this is where we've turned in a lot of ways, is, is to the political realm to give us a story to make sense of our world. Um, but you say that it can, it can become an idol of making a human, an office, a seat of power, a constitution, uh, the world's true ruler. And you say that statism makes government a god. And I think that's a real temptation to think if we get the politics right, that somehow, um, yeah, that, that that story helps us feel safer. And and we're giving an awful lot of authority, authority to political leaders um, that they don't necessarily deserve and they don't necessarily... Um, they're not equipped to handle. You know, um, I would say definitely they don't deserve it. Uh, <laughs> but we're, we're born storytellers. You know, if something happens, let's say, you know, I don't mean a tree falls down in your backyard. I mean, if uh, uh, something happens at the national level, or let's just say the what's, what's happened in Afghanistan, people try to make sense of this. They make sense of it by plugging it into the narrative or the story that they are telling themselves all the time. And if if our narrative is Jesus is Lord, and I don't mean this in a careless, casual, uh, flippant way. Oh, well, Jesus is Lord. Who cares what happens in Afghanistan? Uh, I mean, if we say Jesus is Lord, God is in control we are going to work for the redemption of this place and this story. We change the narrative uh, than if we say uh, President Biden has the, made the worst decision in the history of, of American history. 
or we say that um, Donald Trump got us into this trouble and now we're trying to get out of it. We, we've now created two different narratives that will explain what happened. And we may go to bed resting and say, well, I figured it out. But that's not a Christian narrative. I mean, that, that can be a part of the narrative that we need to tell ourselves. We, we probably want to um, narrate the Christian story in such a way that we can incorporate the story of what goes on in our country, in our state, in our city, our village, our, our seminary, our church. We want these things to make sense in light of the larger story. And we're going to use that larger story. But I, I think we have elevated the political story to the level where they have become messianic. And, and I'm not saying that either party is right. I, I want to be truly independent. I want to stand with what I think is Christian and oppose what I think is non-Christian. You know, the last year, year well, mostly two years, um, I've been working on the book of Revelation. That book is so political in so many ways. Michael Gorman calls it theopolitical, which I, I really like as a word. My editor thinks it's a little too fancy. Um, it's just not common language, is it? Um, I, really, I really am amazed at how perceptive the book of Revelation is in its analytics of the Roman Empire. And it's not just, okay, now we got Rome figured out in the first century. Uh, we live in the 21st century. Who cares? It's that the, the moral marks of empire in Rome become so, they're so clear and important in our culture that what John was saying about the empire then is what Christians should perceive about political powers today. And we need to develop a theopolitical hermeneutic. Okay. Ooh, that's, that's good. This is good for our audience. But <laughs> we need to develop a theopolitical hermeneutic that allows us to become politically informed, theopolitically informed Christians who can resist and become dissidents uh, when we see empire, when we face it when we see it face to face. Yeah, so. that's really good. Well, let's talk a little bit about the story we should be telling ourselves that should help us frame our understanding of how the world works. And let's start with Paul, because I think Paul gave us um, a framing narrative, a way to understand you know, how the world is working and how we fit in it. So what would you characterize um, as Paul's framing narrative, how does he shape that understanding of the story? What story does Paul tell? You know, you can dip into almost any of Paul's letters. Um, I like to I like to use the gospel story of uh, of First um, Corinthians fifteen or Second Timothy chapter two. It doesn't matter which one you use, but there Paul Paul thinks the story that God is narrating for the world, for the Christians, for the believers in Jesus, that narrative is that God has sent his son, 
This son has lived, he's died, he's been buried, he's been raised, he's ascended. He is now on the throne as the world's true ruler. In the face of Rome, this was quite a claim. And Paul wants the believers in the churches to see that that is their narrative. That's the story they're to tell themselves and to live out. So yes, they're, they're going to face famines. They're going to face moral failures. They're going to face all these issues that anybody who lived in Rome would face. Status, degradation. They're going to face the loss of employment. If they're near uh, Naples, they're going to face Vesuvius and the, uh, you know, the volcano. Is that right? Yeah, the volcano. Um, they're going to face these things, and they're going to have to try to explain them. But Paul wants them to start with the with the gospel narrative. But I was thinking of Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen to twenty. Listen, listen to these words. This is a narrative that Paul thinks is the narrative of God in the world. And if this is a song, a hymn of the first century, which I I lean, let's say, 80% in that direction. I know it's not certain, but uh, all my friends who are scholars think it is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in there. Uh, I'm one of them. So here, is the, here are the lines that Paul says. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I mean, quote, for in him all things were created. So look outside. In Christ, those trees were created, those hummingbirds that are right now on our feeder, buzzing around, fighting for the juice, um, the leaves on the tree, the goldfinches, the grasses, the rabbits who get into my garden, the tomatoes, the cucumbers, the chard, the kale, all these things are created in, in Christ. Everything is created in him. Things in heaven and on earth. Now, this is where it gets bigger, visible and invisible. We we don't live in a we don't we don't generally embrace the invisible world, but Paul did. He knew that the empire of Rome, he knew that the opponents of the gospel were inspired by the enemy. That, the, that Rome's injustices and war and their mockery of the word peace by n nothing other than brutal violence, that's their idea of peace. You know, if I can shut you up, I've created the Pax Romana. Um, he knew that behind all those things was the work of death, the work of the enemy. This was not the work of God. And so he says things visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And it seems to me that the best explanation is that Paul thinks political powers have the capacity to do what is good, to do what God wants, or the capacity to do evil and create uh, unjust cultures. And he sees in those unjust cultures uh, the work of the enemy, uh, the, the powers of the air, 
So Paul uses political terms for what he thinks is a combination of the spiritual invisible world and the visible world. All things have been created through Christ and for Christ. So, you know, C.S. Lewis ends the last battle with the trees worshiping the Aslan, I think. It's been a while since I've read that, but I think that's right. Okay. And don't correct me right now if I'm wrong. Let someone else do that. Um, so everything is for him. He, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the language that what what keeps the world going and what keeps its life plugged in so that the sun rises and whatever the moon does, the moon gives its light and uh, the grass turns green and life moves on is because Christ is holding it together. And now he moves from Christ as creator to Christ as church maker. He is the head of the body, the church. So now all of creation uh, is left behind and Paul sees this creator of all things as the head of the of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So this is his language for Christians who've been raised from the dead through baptism in Christ, so that in everything he might have supremacy. That's where our narratives go wrong. We have rival narratives with rival gods on the thrones fighting to win and Paul says, I want Christ to have all the supremacy. That's where, that's where Paul's story is. So when you read Colossians, which is just one of his letters, you know, you got a man, uh, an apostle, who's trying to help the Colossian Christians in the Lycus Valley, not all that far from Ephesus, to understand what's going on in the world has to be understood through the lens of the supremacy of Christ. So I'm I'm for a Jesus-centered narrative. Yeah, that's good. I as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about pastors who are pastoring in our own culture today, dealing with um, a lot of different narratives that are counter narratives or rival narratives. Um, trying to pastor people in this environment. Um, what would you say, like if Paul were to write, so I've seen this on, on Facebook a few times where Paul is sitting down to write a letter to the American church today. Um, if Paul were to do that um, and he were to write Colossians to us in Chicago, you know, um, what what kinds of things would he be telling us about this primary narrative of Jesus and the gospel um, and how to root out these rival narratives? What kinds of things would Pastor Paul tell us, um, and I'm particularly thinking of pastors, pastoring their congregations, um, what kinds of things should we be sharing? What should we be pointing them to and and how do we do that in this environment in a way that's, that's um, I guess, careful and kind, but also direct? Um, so rooting out rival narratives and emphasizing for people that Jesus is Lord over all, 
his story is our story and we need to find ourselves in it and not be distracted by rival narratives and rival Mm. powers. Well, um, I think you've asked the right question, how to do this pastorally. Um, The first thing, I want to say this and, and we'll get there. I don't think Paul would write Colossians today. He would write Revelation. Okay, so let me say that. But I would say that first Paul would say, Pastor, it's your obligation and your opportunity and privilege to embody in your own life a different narrative, to witness to it by your life, to witness to it by your words, by your family, by your disposition, uh, so that people see in you a different story operating and controlling your life. And then as leaders in a church, they have the opportunity to teach, instruct, to mentor, to guide, to disciple people into that narrative in which uh, Christ has the supremacy and Christ is the world's true Lord. So I would say then that that would be the next one. And then only then would I talk about the sermons. I don't think the sermons are the uh, are the only way that pastors influence churches. But um, let's just back it off and say we have a culture that's been corrupted by these rival narratives. Um, to change that culture requires more than a couple good sermons. It requires the pastor uh, embodying this. It, Im- it requires the pastor to form coalition through discipleship and mentoring and teaching and listening and working together to form new narratives in the church that can witness to the Lordship of Christ in all things. And allowing that culture then to influence more and more people, families, children, youth groups, and, and begin to shape things in that direction. But it, it's going to take, it takes a lot of time. I think we've been, I think our narrative has been so severely corrupted uh, that we have people whose lives are nearly destroyed when the right candidate isn't elected. And there are more of these people in our churches than we probably know. And pastors have a calling to discern this and to mentor in that direction. And I've, I've heard this many times in the last few years, is that uh, the, the narrative that was created by evangelicalism, conservatives, in the, let's say, the Reagan era, um, got so deeply woven into the fabric of so many Christians that they only know how to think like that. And they lost the opportunity to disciple in a prophetic way a resistance of empire uh, when, it, when it arose. It, it turned to fear and panic rather than to prophetic witness. And I don't mean by prophetic witness that if you're a Democrat, you, you get to make nasty remarks about the Republicans, or if you're a Republican, you get to make nasty remarks about the Democrats. That's not prophetic. 
Prophetic is to perceive the will of God that is not being done in a culture. So, you know, it's not, are my for vaccines or against vaccines, but what does God want for the health of people in our world? It's not, what do the Republicans or the Democrats want about immigration at the border in Texas and in New Mexico and California, but what is right for Christians to do in these contexts as witnessing to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? I think that kind of question reshapes a lot of these conversations. And I'm grateful for a professor at Wheaton named Danny Carroll. And we have a student right now, uh, a new student, uh, Naomi uh, Sanchez, uh, who are working on the themes of immigration. Uh, and Danny Carroll at Wheaton has written on this. And I, I love to see Christian perspectives on these topics rather than to be bombarded by the social media and the news media who are giving us a political and partisan orientation. So let's think together about these topics as Christians. Oh, it's so exciting. It's a theopolitical hermeneutic that we need. That's what I yes. hear you saying. That's yes. good. That's that's a those are big words worth chewing on, but I think that idea to remember that our story is a story that Jesus is Lord. Yes. He's Lord over all and um, we are called to be witnesses to that fact. Yeah. Yeah. And not be distracted by rival stories that compete um, these rival narratives that compete honestly with the Lordship of Christ, and that's how we need to view it. These are, you know, yeah. Laura, uh, Chris and I lived in England for two years, and it was a, it was um, some big lessons for me. Um, I grew up in the United States. Chris grew up in the United States, and we look at the world through the lens of our political world. And I know people in Ireland, in, in the Republic of Ireland, Dublin, and in the Northern Ireland, in Belfast, and I know people in Denmark, and I know people in other countries, and they have completely different politics. And it's just sort of made me think, well, our politics are kind of fun. They're worth paying attention to. But there's a much bigger story if we realize this world has about... 50 political narratives at work, and God is over all of them and not, let's say, restricted to one of them. Our narrative is not the, our, our political narrative uh, becomes idolatrous and imperial empire when we think it is the world's truest political narrative. We need a theopolitical narrative, and that is a Christocentric a narrative in which Christ is Lord, and we challenge, and we we need to become storytellers like this. And I, you know, I know a lot of young pastors, old pastors, who are doing their best to tell this story every Sunday in their meetings, in their vestry meetings, in their deacons meetings, in their elders meetings, what, what do you call yours? Leadership the leadership council, team. The leadership <laughs> team uh, meetings is that they're trying to create, and they're doing a good job at it. They're working at it. 
trying to create a different narrative that can feed into the people in the church so that the gospel becomes the true narrative of the world. And I think this is what Paul wanted. He wanted to be the storyteller. He knew that the story was the story of God in this world that mattered the most, that God had revealed his son as the world's true ruler. And he wanted people to embrace that narrative. And he was, I mean, just think about this. Let's say you move into North Korea right now, or you move into China. That's what, that's the world that Paul is living in, where it is not a world where it is conducive to his narrative. I mean, I think the people looked at them like, yawn, or what a bunch of nuts. They got to be a cult or something like that. And and he is trying to tell, I think of John um, on, the, on Western Asia Minor, trying to tell these seven communities and churches, assemblies, you know, different, not very many people probably, trying to tell them that Babylon is coming down and the new Jerusalem is going to replace it. And that is just a wonderful narrative. If you're in a prayer meeting with a bunch of people who believe it and they can sing the songs of Revelation, but when you go to the Agora or the marketplace in Sardis or in Ephesus, and you start telling that story, people are going, that's not the story anybody lives in that I know. That's the world of Paul. And we we maybe are beginning to face this more and more in the United States. And we're going to witness um, success, if you want to measure it that way, with people who learn to live a different narrative and witness to that narrative as fruitful for life rather than, you know, trying to seize control by gaining power over some news media or trying to elect someone. Uh, you know, I, I don't think our, our political fury that was created under the Reagan era has turned out for the good. Hmm. Hmm. So to counter that, we need to know the story. We need to know God's story, and and it's one consistent story through the whole of Scripture, and Paul knew that, and he saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the story that God has been telling since the very beginning, and Jesus is Lord, and we need to embody that and live that and witness to that when we are living in an environment that tells us, wants us to believe very different, conflicting narratives. So I think that's really helpful. All right. Well, thank you for this conversation. It's really fun to think about the stories that we tell and the story we should be telling instead. Um, you know, today, I, I, yeah. I'm looking at you because we're on video. I can see you. Yes. Laura. And I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> Laura's thinking about sermons she's going to be preaching. And she's thinking, you're beginning to ask me these questions. What about mm-hmm. pastors? And you're thinking, how am I going to disciple people into this yes. narrative well yes i think you're asking the right questions and i'm i i had a conversation this last week because we're talking church planting and that was yeah. one of the questions is how do you lead well in the in a very divisive political context yeah. 
And I said, I think you just keep going back to kingdom values, kingdom values. Just keep preaching on kingdom values until we understand that's God's story. That's that's our true story. Yeah. You know, I was just talking to a pastor, had lunch with a pastor today, and we were talking about some changes that happened in his church, in their church. And uh, he said, I told the assistant that we're not going to talk about this. We're going to model it. Mm. And I just keep coming back to that. Be the example yeah. of that narrative. So very yeah, good. Yeah, that's very really good. good. Well, today we talked about the culture of storytellers from the Pastor Paul book. And next time on Kingdom Roots, we'll talk about the culture of witness. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue this conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how, it, how it's taking root now. 